Now let's turn for our uh, second reading of scripture and indeed for our text, uh, turn to the prophet Isaiah and chapter 11 of his prophecy. That's just about halfway through your Bibles. The prophecy of Isaiah and chapter 11, where we have a prophecy of Christ as king, and we have a special view of his kingdom too. So chapter 11, and reading at verse 1. There shall come forth a rod or a shoot from the stem or stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. May the Lord bless that reading too from his holy word. And let's turn to look at the opening verse. Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a rod or a shoot from the stem or the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now this uh, chapter, as I mentioned, brings before us Christ as the king. He is the branch of the royal house of David. He belongs to that house and he comes from it. And the whole chapter, we only read a part, but the whole chapter brings before us the glory of the king and especially perhaps the glory of his kingdom. And I want us to look at these two things today as the Lord enables us, the king and then tonight, his kingdom. Now the chapter opens with the Lord's cause obviously being brought very low. Now, that's not an unusual thing. There's sometimes God allows that to happen. 
and uh, with the cause coming low, so does the royal house of David here. Uh, what once used to be a flourishing tree is now reduced to a stem or a stump. It's not even called the stump of David. It's called the stump of David's father, Jesse. Now, there's a reason why the royal house has been brought so low. It's been brought so low because the church itself has been brought low. I think that reminds us that there are two stumps in Isaiah's prophecy. Um, the, the first one is in chapter 6, uh, where Isaiah was commissioned as a preacher, or as a prophet. And he was solemnly told when he was sent out that in spite of the preaching, and by the way, it was a preaching that contained so much of Christ, in spite of his preaching, his word would be rejected. And because of the people's sin and because of their rejection of the very plain gospel message that Isaiah preached, the outcome would be that the cities would be deserted, that Judah would be taken captive, and that the church of God, which flourished in the land once like a tree, would be reduced to a stem or a stump. Uh, but that stem or the stump was the remnant which would one day regrow. Now, that, of course, was a very solemn message for Isaiah to receive, especially at the very beginning of his ministry, at his very commissioning. He was told that the outcome would be a mass rejection of the message and the church reduced to a stump. But as well as the church being reduced to a stump, so sadly, with the royal house. When Isaiah was called, the king was Uzziah, and he was a, a good king. Um, but Isaiah is told here that the royal house would be reduced to a stump. But the interesting thing is that in this passage here, what we see is the, the stump, which looks dead. You know, like you sometimes walk past stumps of trees that have been cut down a good while ago and they're overgrown and they look for all the world dead. Well, this stump here is coming to life. Now, although I say it's coming to life, we have to realize that, of course, it, it never really died. Uh, life was in it. That's true of the stump of the church. It's also true of the stump of the royal house. It's also true of the stump of the Christian. Sometimes the Christian is reduced from being a flourishing tree to being a stump. In various ways, I don't have time to go into them, but I don't know if you remember when Job, well, his circumstances became terrible and his friends who were counseling him said that he reminded them of a tree that had been cut down by a stump by God. And they were insinuating that there was nothing in him, that he was a hypocrite, and God had taken away everything he had because he wasn't genuine. Now, Job's response to that is a very famous response. He says, well, I may have been cut down, he said, but you shouldn't persecute me because the root of the matter is still in me. You find these words at the end of chapter 19, a famous chapter, where he speaks of his great faith in God, and he says that, the root of the matter is still in me. And sometimes we need to remember that when the fortunes of some Christian people change, 
and change greatly, and we may think that there was nothing in them, that there was never anything in them, but um, that may very well be different. Far from being destroyed, maybe they have been cut down for a purpose, but the root of the matter or the seed of God is still in them. So let's just bear that in mind. But the church is sometimes reduced to a stump. Isaiah saw that in chapter 6. But that stump was the remnant. It contained the remnant of God's people. Isaiah 6.13, So the holy seed shall be the stump, or the stump shall be the holy seed. And again, that reminds us in the church itself that however low the cause may sink, he will never leave himself without a witness. We have the promise that a seed shall serve him as long as the sun and the moon endure. Therefore, we expect to see revivals from time to time. God will never leave his church as a stump. It will regrow. Now, that's true of the royal household, too. It was true of David's house. Um, We were told right at the beginning of Scripture in the book of Genesis that the scepter would not depart from Judah. It would not depart from the royal house, the authority and the power to rule. It wouldn't depart until the Messiah himself comes, the royal son of God. And what we have in this chapter here, in chapter 11, is the second stump, not the church this time, but the royal house of David itself. And it's reviving. Suddenly, there comes forth a rod or a shoot from the stem of Jesse and a branch growing out of its roots. Now, this is no ordinary revival of the royal house. This is the rod. This is the branch that was prophesied. Now, if you know your Bible well, if you know it very well, you'll know that the Messiah is often prophesied as a branch to come. In fact, the branch is an Old Testament title for the Lord Jesus Christ. And some time ago, we looked at an example of that in the book of Zechariah. But I want to look at uh, the branch as he's brought before us here in this chapter. The royal branch of David, the royal king, uh, sitting on David's throne. Now, as I said at the beginning, let's look at the glory of the king himself, the glory of this branch, the king, and tonight we'll look, God willing, at the glory of his kingdom. It's an unusual kingdom with the wolf dwelling with the lamb and the leopard with the young goat, but tonight we'll see what these things mean. Now, let's begin with the glory of the king himself. Now, look, first of all, at the origin of this branch. He comes from the stump. There shall come forth a rod from the stem or the stump of Jesse. Now, you could say that this branch grows from both stumps. He comes from the stump of the church. He is part of the holy seed. And he comes from the fruit of the prayers of the holy seed. You know, whenever God sent a deliverer, he moved the church to pray for a deliverer. It was the prayers of the church in the fourth generation in Egypt that produced Moses when they groaned in their bondage. It was the prayers of the church too that 
produced Samuel when the remnant prayed and Hannah prayed representing the church and God raised a deliverer. Now the same thing happened with the Lord Jesus Christ too. When the fullness of the time came, there was a remnant, a holy seed, a stump, and they were waiting in their prayers and we could say too that they were praying in their waiting. Women like Anna and Elizabeth and men like Simeon and Zechariah. And you'll remember that Simeon, that old man, was given a word by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And it's from that living, praying stump. It's from that living seed inside a, a reduced church, a stump of a church. It's from that that this branch of the Lord comes. But here you'll notice that he's coming from the stump of the royal house in particular. The royal house of David that had been brought so low. And it's brought so low that no one at the time knew to whom the throne of David actually belonged. Now it's almost unthinkable that the throne of David, which had received so many promises about its glory and its grandeur and its permanence. It's so hard to believe that it had been brought so low. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, it's not even called the stump of David here, but the stump of Jesse. Now, who was Jesse? Well, he was David's father, but he was really an obscure figure. Uh, there was nothing known about him except that he is really David's father. That's all. He was a man of God, but that's who he was. He was David's father. But the royal house here is reduced to obscurity again. And as I say, nobody knows to whom the throne belongs. Isn't that a remarkable thing? But the fact is that God knew to whom the throne belonged. Who did it belong to? Who had the right at that particular time, at the time of Christ's birth, who had the right to sit on David's throne? Well, the lawful heir to the throne was, of course, a man called Joseph. But you don't find Joseph in any palace in Jerusalem, you find him working as a humble carpenter in Nazareth. And yet, he was the one who had the right to sit on the throne. How low the royal house had become. And when I say God knows that, there's an encouragement in that. You see, we may lose a track of things. We may lose a track of who came from whom and how a spiritual descent can flow through a family. But God doesn't lose track. God knows where the children of Israel are now. They are all scattered throughout the world, but God knows them all, and he will bring them in in his own time. We don't know, too, when people are converted that they hadn't been prayed for and maybe received a promise regarding by grandparents or great-grandparents, but God can follow that channel. He knows the line. And the man who had the right to sit on David's throne was a man called Joseph. And in God's providence, God had ordained that there was a daughter of the royal house of David too, residing in the same village of Nazareth. And God brought them together. The man who had the right to the throne and a daughter of David's royal house. And it's from that stump. And what a stump it was. I mean, who, who were they? Who were they? But it was from them that this branch 
was to appear. Now that's the king's origin. Now we know, of course, that the king had a heavenly origin too. We know that the, the Lord Jesus, the branch, came from heaven. We know that too. But the focus in the passage here is his origin upon the earth. He comes from the stump of the church and he comes from the stump of David's royal house. The second thing we notice is his actual appearing. He comes from the stump and he appears as a rod and a branch. Now, there's a bit of an order to that because he appears as a rod before he appears as a branch. The word rod, if you're using this version of the Bible, you'll notice that it has a little numeral beside it, the numeral one, which puts you into the center passage or the center column of your Bible. And you'll notice that an alternative translation is the word shoot. And I think that that is the better translation of this word. There shall come forth a shoot from the stem of Jesse. The word means in the Hebrew really a twig or a green shoot that just comes out of the stump. A green shoot out of the stump. Now this reminds us of a more famous passage in the prophecy of Isaiah. One that we read often and one that's often read, I suppose, around communion time. He shall grow up before him as tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire. Just take the first part of that. That's Isaiah 53, of course. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord revealed? Verse 2 says that he shall grow up, that is the Christ, shall grow up before him, before his, before God, before his Father, as a tender plant. Now, again, you see there, that would be better rendered a tender shoot. It, it's not wrong, but a tender shoot would be better. It's not the ordinary word for plant. In fact, the idea of being planted isn't present in this Hebrew word at all. And when we think of a plant, it can be very misleading. The idea here is not a tender, a tender plant that someone has planted. It's actually a tender shoot that appears from a stump. The word uh, shoot here or plant is actually a rare Hebrew word. And it comes from the word to suck. To suck. And in, in the gardening world, or looking after trees, they, they speak of a sucker. Now, a sucker is a reference to a, a green shoot that comes from a stump of a tree. And in fact, it's used of the, of the shoot from a stump of a tree that actually appears at a distance from the tree itself. In other words, this sucker or this shoot has come out of the stump, a stump that looks dead. But it's come out from underneath the soil and it appears a few feet away from the tree. You can't even tell that it's related to the tree. But what it is, is actually a shoot or a sucker from that tree that will grow to become a tree in its own right. Now, when we see it that way, that this word is from suck, it means a sucker. What a difference 
it makes to our understanding of this shoot that comes from the stem of Jesse. And his appearing as a shoot, I think, tells us a few things. It tells us, first of all, that our, our, our Lord Jesus, the King, uh, in his first appearance, was vulnerable. He shall grow up before him as a tender shoot. And uh, our Lord couldn't, as it were, humanly speaking, be more vulnerable than he was. He didn't come into this world as a king in majesty and glory, uh, but as one who was born a babe, entirely dependent. And uh, we see that as he is on his mother's breast. And uh, in the weakness of his infancy, the devil was on his case immediately. I suppose we could say the devil was never off his case. But there were times when he was particularly on his case. You'll remember that after the temptation in the wilderness, we're told that the devil left him for a season. So God makes sure that the devil is not always on our case, but there are seasons when he is on our case. And he was on Christ's case at infancy. In Revelation 12, we're told that the dragon, the devil, stood before the woman. That is the church, but especially as she is seen in Mary, the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. And and that dragon already waiting for that birth, you, you see that dragon act, of course, in King Herod, full of the power of Satan. You see it in his massacre of all the children under two, which in Bethlehem, David's town, an attempt to to destroy David's royal seed, which of course led to Rachel's tears that we looked at just a a few weeks ago. So in his earliest days, he is vulnerable and vulnerable to the devil. But uh, you'll notice too that he was surrounded by hostility. This this, uh, sucker from the root or this shoot from the root is also described as a root out of dry ground. Now that's a reference to the hostile environment around the stump and indeed around the shoot, a hostile spiritual environment. Although Christ is connected to the royal house, it offers him nothing. It offers him nothing at all. Nobody even knows that he's connected to the royal house. Of course, he was born in David's town of Bethlehem. But there was no room for him at the inn. He he was dedicated in the temple in David's royal city. But that was the city that never received him every time he entered into it. So David's town and David's city rejected him. But you'll remember that Christ shoots into view apart from the stump. He shoots into view in the dry ground of Nazareth. And I think that leads us to this, that Christ was required to grow in the most unfavorable spiritual ground possible. And I don't know if you've ever thought of Nazareth like that. It's quite clear in the New Testament that Galilee as a region was generally looked down upon because of its its poor spiritual life. And who would have looked um, there for the Savior? Who was it in Nazareth who looked to the Lord anyway? Aside from 
a few like Joseph and Mary, who else was there? It's a staggering thing that even in Christ's own household, there was nothing but dry ground apart from his mother and father. Uh, all his brothers, there were at least four of them, and his sisters, there were at least two of them, all rejected him. They, and the whole town rejected him as one who was supposedly conceived out of marriage. Um, Nazareth was the only town in Galilee that openly rejected him and tried to kill him. You remember that? They actually physically took him to the top of a hill to throw him off. It was the only town in Galilee where Christ did no mighty works. And it was the only town at which Christ marveled because of their unbelief. Now, these are, these are quite horrific things to contemplate. Quite horrific. These things are not written of any other place. He did mighty works all over Galilee. And he, he didn't have to marvel at unbelief anywhere. But he marveled at it in Nazareth. So this shoot, this shoot comes up from the ground in a very inhospitable place. Amongst, you could say, an apostate people who were proverbial for hardness of heart. As Matthew tells us, he shall be called a Nazarene. He shall be called a Nazarene. There's actually a peculiarity about that. It leads us somewhere else, and we can't go down it just now. But the strange thing is that although I think the writer means there that he shall be despised and thought of as nothing, the, the Netzer part of Nazarene is actually the word for branch. But just have to leave that as where it is, a root out of a dry ground. Now, I think before we pass on from this, it's worth saying that sometimes many of God's choicest people or his choice branches are found in unlikely places. Not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And we always have to remember that. Um, we're not to prejudge people according to where they have come from or, or anything of that kind, that God's choicest people can come from the most unlikely places. And some of his greatest servants over the last 2,000 years have not come from amongst the wise and the noble and the mighty, but come from nowhere. So the appearance of this branch as a shoot shows us that he's vulnerable a tender plant, a tender shoot in a dry ground. But the appearing of the shoot as well shows us the lowliness of this king, the lowliness of the king. He doesn't appear as a king. He appears very, very different. In fact, Isaiah goes on to say that he is a tender shoot, a tender shoot from the stem of Jesse, he has no form or comeliness and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, he is not kingly in his appearance. Now, we need to qualify that. I think we need to qualify that because in a way that depends what we're looking for in a king. If you're going to look for a fullness of spiritual beauty, well, that was in him. And it could be seen by, by those who had eyes to see that he was altogether lovely. And someone as full of faith and of, of love as Mary was, when she poured the 
alabaster box of oil upon him. She saw his kingliness. To her there was no one more kinglike than the one who reclined before her. No doubt about that. He was altogether lovely. And there was plenty kingliness about him. But the problem is that, like Israel long ago, when the church is reduced to a stump, and when the royal house is reduced to a stump, they're looking for Saul and not David. They're making the same kind of mistake that they always make, looking for earthly kings, earthly glory. But there was no trappings of earthly royalty about Christ, no ornate robes, no abundant wealth, no title, nothing. Nothing outward or obvious to connect him to the royal house at all. He is lowly, lowly. He is just a tender shoot that appears at a distance from the stump of the royal household. That was part of his humiliation, as the catechism reminds us, to be born and that in a low condition, in a low condition. And you'll notice from being born in a low condition, he just descends from there. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbles himself. He just goes downward. He starts low and begins a descent. Down, stooping down, until he comes to the lowly death of the cross. So his appearing as a shoot speaks of vulnerability and it speaks of lowliness, lowliness, humility. But I wonder too, and I'm just going to suggest this, I wonder if appearing as a a shoot or a root out of a dry ground, distant from the stump, I wonder if it speaks of his loneliness too. I'm not going to make much of this, but I just wonder if it speaks of his loneliness in isolation, in dry ground. Is there something lonely about the development and growth of this king? Well, friends, I think there is. I suppose we tend to confine loneliness to the end of his life and to his explicit forsakenness at the close of life, which, of course, was part of the infliction of wrath upon him. He was deserted by the disciples. The angels withdrew and he was forsaken by his father. That's true. But wasn't there something of the solitary about him all his days? Do you not even get the feeling in reading about him that he is a man alone? That he's a man alone even in the crowd? The pelican of wilderness, the owl and desert, I do match. And sparrow-like, companionless, upon the house's top. I watch. Does that not describe him really all life long? That the hand of the Lord was upon him in such a way that he was often alone. Like Jeremiah says, I sat alone because of your hand. I sat alone because of your hand. The dealings of the Lord with him in his soul were so intense that he had to be apart. Now friends, the servant is not greater than the master. And although in his grace God's planted us in his own house and planted the solitary in families and given us abundance of things, yet sometimes we find ourselves necessarily apart and alone. And I think there's a reason for it. God's people 
is true people are often alone. They're often lonely people. And the reason for it, I think, is because we are all so prone to idolatry, to idolize things and to idolize people too. And I think God in his kindness often casts us back on ourselves, as it were, alone, with the view that we cast ourselves upon him, upon him. And this root out of the dry ground, this shoot, this tender shoot from the stump, has God as his companion. He shall grow up before him as a tender shoot. God was his protector in his vulnerability. And uh, it was in God that he was exalted. And it's in God that he found his company. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Nobody paid him any attention. Nobody thought him significant. They thought him insignificant. But all through his life growing up, he was growing up before him as a tender plant. How good it is, friends, to be in the eye of God, to be in the purpose of God, to be known by God and to be cared for by God. So that branch appears. Uh, he is connected to the stump and he appears as a shoot or as this uh, sucker from the root in dry ground. Now just a second and a bit more briefly, I want to look at the king's anointed, the king's anointing in verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord, this is Isaiah 11, it's our text, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots. And here you have his anointing. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now we're not going to look at his kingdom. Uh, but just the king and his anointing here. We've seen how he grows, but here he's anointed. And he's anointed, of course, with the Spirit of the Lord, which rests upon him in verse 2. Now, you'll notice that the Spirit of the Lord here is named seven times. Suppose in one way you have six denominations, spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might and knowledge and fear, but he's actually denominated or named seven times. He's called the spirit of the Lord, spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, spirit of counsel, spirit of might, spirit of knowledge, spirit of fear. Seven. Now, the spirit is connected very often with the number seven in scripture. It's too much again to go into it just now. It's a study. Maybe you can look at yourselves. He's sometimes described as seven lamps. Uh, before the throne. He is described as seven eyes running to and fro over the face of the earth, but he's connected with the number seven. Now, the number seven conveys the idea of fullness, fullness, or even completion. It doesn't convey perfection. There are some who say it conveys perfection, but it doesn't. That is, that is represented by the number 10 in Scripture. Seven is fullness or completion. Now, <laughs> there's, a, there's a strange way of describing the, the number seven here. You'll notice that you have a single spirit of the Lord, and then there are three pairs. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might, 
knowledge and fear. That's related to the lampstand. We'll, we'll see that in a second. But let's just stick for a moment at the sevenfold fullness. The fullness of the, of the Spirit of the Lord, we're told, rests upon him. Rests upon him. Now, I think we'd have to say that the Spirit of the Lord always rested upon him. Now, I think sometimes people can be confused as to the relationship between Christ and the Spirit and why Christ as the Son of God needed the Spirit. But it's, I think, in some respects anyway, I think it is more simple um, than we think it to be. Of course, there are inherent complexities that we'll never understand, but the essence of it is more simple than we realize. It was part of becoming man, fully man, genuinely man. Part of that required that he would live as man in dependence upon God. At no point is he self-reliant. At no point does the Son of God in his human nature draw from his own divine resources. He must live human life in the strength of God as that strength is mediated to him by the Holy Spirit. And uh, he acknowledges that himself in his youngest days. He says to his father, you did make me hope while I was in on my mother's breast. Now, remember, of course, as I've often said to you, that the child was on the breast for a long time in that culture. Not for months, but for years. And so the child was on the breast long after he began to think and to reason and to study and to learn. You, he said, made me hope while I was on my mother's breast. And it's an interesting thing that the scripture records for us, the spirit-filled development of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's carefully recorded for us, especially in the gospel according to Luke. He's the one who marks out how the Holy Spirit rested upon him since he was a young shoot, since he came forth from the dry ground at a little distance from the stump. Luke tells us that as a boy or a child, that he grew, this is Luke 2.40, and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. Now this is still speaking of his childhood, specifically, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. He is as wise as a child could be. He is not as wise as an adult could be. It is according to his development. He as, is as wise with a fullness of wisdom as a child could be, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, the next time Luke tells us something similar is when he reaches 12 years of age, when he becomes an adult, a young man, which is... At 12 years of age, he was considered as passing into adulthood. We're told that he went back down with them to Nazareth as a 12-year-old and that he increased in wisdom. Notice he increased in wisdom as he grew in years. He increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So Luke is telling us that the child growing was wise, it's full of the Spirit, 
and the young man passing into adulthood was growing, filled with the Spirit. And at each stage of development, there is a filling for that development, a filling for his childhood and a filling for his adulthood. This man truly grows. And wouldn't it be good to grow like that? There may, of course, be a uniqueness about this, but there's a commonality too. As a child, you should strive to be what a child can be. As a young man or a young woman, you should strive to be filled as a young man or a young woman should be. And as an adult, uh, and as an old man or an old woman, you should strive to be full and to be filled as an old man or old woman should be. But you'll notice that this resting of the Spirit of the Lord upon him is a special resting. It is not just the resting of the Spirit upon him at each stage of life. This is the resting of kingly anointing. This is the Spirit that comes upon him at 30, 30, 30 years of age when he is anointed at the Jordan River. Now, I suppose we're more familiar with him being baptized with water at the Jordan but we shouldn't forget that he was baptized with the Spirit at Jordan too. You'll remember how the Spirit came down upon him in the bodily form of a dove, Luke tells us. And uh, John the Baptist speaks about that later when he looks back at this anointing and he says, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. Remember, Luke says that was in the bodily form of a dove. But anyway, John says, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. He remained upon him. So the Spirit that descended upon him, anointing him at the Jordan at 30 years of age, never left him, but remained upon him. Now, this is a special fullness. Not the fullness that belonged to his childhood. Not the fullness that belonged to his adulthood. This is a special fullness that belonged to his ministry. It is a fullness that gave him the word of prophecy, the message that he was to speak. And it's a, a fullness that gave him the power of miracle, to perform miracles by the Holy Spirit, by his own authority, strangely, by his own authority, but in the power of the Holy Spirit as the branch of God. That's why when he started preaching in Nazareth, um, the, the, the sermon that he first preached, he quoted from Isaiah's prophecy, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says. This is Isaiah 61. That was his text. That was the first text Christ took when he came to Nazareth. Sorry, when he preached first in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the recovery of sight to the blind. That's the spirit that anointed him, the spirit for his work, the spirit for his ministry, the spirit to preach and to perform miracles. It's anointed king. Now I'm going to leave you with this, but um, it's it's an interesting thing, and to be honest, the door has only opened for me on it, and I really want to look at it a lot more, but I, I want to, to give it to you anyway. There is a, a picture of the Spirit-filled branch in the Old Testament. 
And it comes in a surprising place. It's in the lampstand in the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle is a giant visual aid. I've often described it as that. It's a giant visual aid of the person and work of Christ. And the lampstand was a significant part of that. We, we think of the lampstand rightly as having these uh, seven branches and there's bowls on top of the branches and the oil is being fed into the bowls and it produces the light. That is the spirit-filled Lord Jesus Christ. What we tend to forget is that the lampstand was a tree or a branch. And uh, there are three stages of fruit on the branches. You'll have noticed that there were the knobs and the fruit and the blossoms, uh, just like the rod of Aaron that flourished. There was fruit in three stages. And you'll notice in Isaiah 11 too that we have a a strange way of describing the sevenfold spirit. You have a, first of all, a singular spirit of the Lord. That's your central stem. And then you have the three pairs of two. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. Spirit of counsel and might. Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That is exactly how the lampstand was arranged. You had the central stem in the middle. Ornate with uh, bulbs and flowers. And then you had two pairs of three coming out. You'll be familiar with the Jewish lamp. But in fact, it's the symbol, I suppose, of Jewishness today. And it appears on the Arch of Titus in Rome. The central stem. And then at the bottom, you've got a first pair coming out on each side till they reach the top. Midway, you've got the second pair coming out each side. And then near the top, you have the third pair. And they all come to the same level with lamps above them, supplied by the oil of the Holy Spirit. Now, is Christ not the fulfillment of that, the antitype? The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him abundantly to produce the qualities that he needs as the Messiah, and he bears fruit. Bears fruit, bulbs, fruit, blossoms. So it's not just light from the lampstand. There is fruit from the lampstand. A glorious king coming forth as a shoot branching out of Jesse's roots and then copiously anointed with the sevenfold spirit of the Lord. The result of that is that his kingdom is very different from the kingdoms of this world. Let's take a look at the kingdom as we see it in Isaiah 11, God willing, tonight. May the Lord bless our meditation upon his word and upon his blessed self. Let's close by uh, singing. <laughs> 